0: your reaction time once you've been located by the enemy is probably less than a half a second. So that meant to me that I better find them first before they find me.
1: Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at orbanfoundationforveterans dot Please consider donating at orbanfoundationforveterans dot forward slash donate. The Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to another conversation in our series of segments in the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our guest today is Jerry Wett, who lives in a suburb of Milwaukee called Menominee Falls and is joining us via uh, his home computer. Jerry is a former soldier who served with the Army's uh, 1st Cavalry Division in Vietnam throughout 1968 and 69. Jerry, it's a pleasure to have you on board. Thanks for joining us today.
0: Uh, thank you, Bob.
1: We're going to listen to you share your story about your experiences in Vietnam, what life was like before you entered the service, uh, and afterward. Um, I know a little bit about your story, and I know that it, uh, there are certainly compelling aspects to it, and I'm anxious to hear your descriptions. Let's start with... Um, your home life. I understand you grew up uh, in Milwaukee, and did your dad or mom serve in the service?
0: Was there a service connection in any way? Uh, yes, there was, actually. Um, I can go back to uh, my grandfather. He served in World War One, and then my father was um, uh, was with the uh, United States Army um, in World War Two, and, in fact, he was the uh, second wave that hit Normandy, and then he— uh, You know, he was in the military and and went all the way through uh, till the end of the war. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's been my background. So my father was uh, was a soldier and he was a forward observer.
1: I'm going to ask you more about that in just a minute. But first, how about family, brothers and sisters? Yes,
0: uh, I grew up uh, with two younger brothers, uh, no sisters. So I was the oldest. And uh, of course, I... I, I, I took the brunt of all the, uh, all the disciplines.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and high school years, uh, did you play sports?
0: Uh, yes, I did. I, uh, actually went to, uh, Custer high school and, uh, I played, uh, I played junior varsity football and, uh, made my last game. I actually, uh, was moved up to varsity and, uh, then after that, uh, I went to that game, and actually, uh, playing center, um, I, I suffered a compression fracture of my mm. back, and uh, that ended my football playing days. But uh, in my, the rest of my junior and senior year, I played baseball. And when did you graduate from high school? I graduated in June of 1964. Mm. And
1: the uh, Army experience then, were you drafted or did you enlist?
0: No, actually, what happened after high school, I went to, uh, uh, at the time it was called Milwaukee Institute of Technology, now MATC, and I had uh, gotten an associate's degree after two years, and they convinced me to go back for a third year to get the management degree, and I did, and I graduated uh, there in, uh, in June of, uh, 67, hmm. uh, that year also just prior to me graduating in June, in May, I got married, um, <clears throat> to my high school sweetheart. And, uh, in August, then, uh, I came home from playing golf and uh, my wife was standing there with, uh, an invitation from the United States government, uh, to come down and see your draft board.
1: <laughs> uh, that's one way to put it right so uh, how did your family react to this for instance uh was your dad still alive at the time? oh doctor? yes
0: yes okay. my dad was alive and i i told him hey dad you know this was uh you know the start of a, uh, at the height of basically the height of the vietnam war so lots of my friends were being drafted so he said well he says you go and do your thing go down there and and uh, go through the process and see what happens. Um, and I, under advisement from some other people, they said, Well, why don't you take some of your records down there um, for your uh, x rays from your fractured back or from your, you know, compression fracture of your back? And I said, Okay, I'll do that. Uh, interesting, really quick story. I went down to the draft uh, center. milwaukee and waited in line and there was a man sitting by the desk and as i walked up to the desk um, he said what's your name blah 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 he says do you have any uh, proof of anything that's any kind of disabilities and i showed him this big this big envelope with the with the x-rays in it he opened it up he looked at it and he said to me he says can you please just bend over and touch your toes well, I was able to do that, and he uh, then took out a stamp and went next. So oh that's how I got into the military.
1: <laughs> was what was your initial reaction to that?
0: Well, well I was like, "Oh boy, <laughs> this is something. This must be the army the way it is." So, um, actually, then I was uh, I went into the to the army uh, in August of 1967.
1: So here you were a newlywed and for that matter, an associate's degree and uh, really your life in front of you and boom, you're drafted and, and you're going to leave. What did that exactly, feel like?
0: Exactly. How did that feel? Well, you know, um, I guess I'm the type of a person who has accepted the, the reality that, okay, you know, a lot of my friends that I knew uh, were being drafted and going to Vietnam and uh, having my fa- my grandfather in the military, my dad in the military. I felt it was my, it was my duty. And to be honest with you, my honor to be able to uh, serve my country. So I, I accepted it.
1: How about your wife? What was her
0: reaction? Well, she basically was sad that I had to leave, of course, uh, but there was really nothing that we could do. I just told her. I said, "Hey, you know, um, I'm going to do what I need to do and have to do, and we'll just have to um, we'll just have to see this through."
1: Were your friends supportive of you after you were drafted and, and encouraging you in,
0: in what may lie ahead? Actually, you know, I really never really talk too much. I had a few close friends. In fact, one of my best friends had been drafted a year earlier, and uh, I had been writing to him, and he and I have been correspondent, corresponding uh, f- for that year, and <laughs> there's, a, there's a story that I'll talk to you about later, but he was also drafted and went to the 1st Cavalry Division. Now, I had no idea where I was going to be or end up because I I was just on my way to uh, Fort, Fort Campbell, Kentucky for basic training.
1: Yeah, let's pick up the story from there. How long did basic training last and then uh, what occurred immediately
0: afterward? Well, basic training, I went in in August uh, of 1967 and I went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky for basic training. Uh, when I went there, I was uh, 238 pounds I was uh, not in very very good shape, but uh, through my eight weeks of training and uh, PT, uh, I I really dropped a lot of weight, and I just put all my effort into getting into shape, and um, uh, it really paid off in the end. Uh, again, uh, when I went, you know, to basic training, as you probably are aware. It's mostly physical training, and then we we, uh, uh, we were taught uh, how to shoot a weapon, obviously, the M-16. Uh, I was expert on that. I was expert with the 45. And uh, so after the graduation from basic training in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, um, now it's uh, probably it's around November. And uh yeah, it was November, like the second week in November, we were immediately, or I was immediately given orders to report and had was shipped to Fort Ord, California for my AIT, Advanced Individual Training. And when I got there, I was fortunate because the drill instructor that I had uh, looked at some of the uh, records that I had and saw that I was an very good physical shape, believe it or not, and I was I scored high academically on the uh, uh, on the, on this for sure. um, aptitude tests. So. Aptitude tests, yeah. excuse sure. me. So uh, they made me the acting platoon sergeant, hmm. uh, and uh, then we were told that our platoon was going to be trained in uh, arms, uh, fire, fire, uh, mortar fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, an, an arms unit. And so we started training with uh, mortar. And uh, that's how that's how I was able to go through AIT thinking that I was going to be uh, in a weapons platoon with uh, particularly with mortar. Mm mm-hmm
1: uh let me back up just one second was the experience you had in basic training with rifle training and pistol training etc was that your first exposure to
0: weapons or did your family hunt no uh, we never did any hunting and that was my first experience with any kind of firearms
1: so at what point then after the uh, advanced individual training or ait when did you get word that you'd be going to vietnam
0: well here's the thing um uh as I told you, uh, I was acting platoon sergeant, and with two weeks left to go in our uh, training in, in AIT out at Fort Ord, uh, the company commander called myself and two other fellas into his office one evening, and we had no idea what that was all about. We got there, and he says, come on in, fellas, uh, would you like a beer? So we sat down and... <laughs> We had a beer and were wondering what this was all about. Well, it turns out that uh, the company commander was a um, U.S. Army ranger, and he was uh, telling us that they had been watching, keeping an eye on us, and that he thought that us three were good candidates for uh, U.S. Army um, ranger training sc- a school to go there after our AIT. And we, he expounded on that a little bit more, and it would mean that we would have to go through 12 weeks of survival training in some swamp in Louisiana. And it would mean that we would have to uh, re-up for two years, and it meant an automatic um, trip to Vietnam for a year. Now, we had heard through Scuttlebutt that our unit – was going to go to Germany for 18 months. So we, all three of us uh, declined his offer. And he says, no, no, no. He says, I want you to take a week and really think about it. <laughs> okay, sir, so we left. Uh, week went by, he called us back into his office and he asked us again what our decision was. And he said, um, we all said, we, we appreciate the offer, We're." We're very honored that we would be chosen, but our answers are are, are no, that we would not want to do that. So he immediately dismissed us. And to end the story quickly, what happened then uh, is uh, three days later, we had our graduation and all the pomp and circumstance and everything. And right after that, we were all in formation and our, our platoon sergeant was handing out orders for our platoon. And all of a sudden, I started hearing all for our company, and all of a sudden, I heard all these cheers and everything. Well, by the time it got to me, W. Witt, (laughs) we already had heard that, my goodness, they're so happy because they're going to Germany. (laughs) All but three guys. Really? Those three guys are going to be going to Scout Dog Training School in Fort Benning, Georgia, for 12 weeks of training with a dog. And I, I went up to my platoon sergeant, and I said, what is, what is this all about? Well, we went to some book that he had about uh, MOSs, and he looked it up, and he says, well, it looks like you're going to train with a dog, and you're going to be leading patrols through the jungle in support of infantry units, and your job is going to be with the use of the dog to help detect where the enemy is or pick up scent left behind on booby traps, tunnels, etc. And wow. I just did the sign of the cross and I went, Oh no. So I went home and I had a 30 day leave before I went to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, my, my dad says, well, now you're going to Fort Benning, Georgia. And I told him, what this was all about, I, I mentioned it to my brothers and to my mom, and my—I well, really didn't have any clue exactly how this whole thing was going to work. So uh, my my leave was over, and I headed um, I headed to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, and uh, I had told my wife that what this was all going to entail and what I was going to be doing over there. And she just broke down in tears. But I said, hey, it is, we just have to accept it, and I have to do the best job that I can. So I went down there with the knowledge knowing that I basically was going to be a point man, and that was going to be my job in Vietnam to keep not only my dog and myself safe, but all the the 60 or 80 men behind me safe as well. So I really knew that I had to focus uh, on what my training is going to be with that dog.
1: Let's fast forward to you arriving in Vietnam and then to the first time that you actually go out on patrol
0: mm-hmm. with the dog. What was that like? Well, when I, let me just say, when I trained at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, I trained with a dog that was completely raw. And uh, after the, um, After the training was over, uh, that dog and dogs like him had to go through the training twice. So when I left to go to Vietnam and I arrived, I was assigned to the 1st Cavalry Division. And from there, I was sent up to An K, which was the uh, division headquarters for the 1st Cavalry Division. And I was sent to the 34th. I-P-S-D, which is Infantry Platoon Scout Dog, and there I met my company commander, uh, Lieutenant Buckner, and he welcomed me there, and he assigned me a dog, and that dog's name was Skip, and he was a black and tan German shepherd who had been there for about two years. His handler had left to go home. So that dog was available. So I had to then work with Skip for two weeks because I had to learn how he alerts. And and when I say alert, you know, when he picks up scent, usually the dog stops. His nose will twitch, his ears will go forward. And that's my indication that he's picked up scent And my job at that time would be to read the wind In which direction is he picking this up, which way is the wind blowing, so that I can make an accurate deduction as to where this personnel or this booby trap and uh, things of that nature might be. And so I worked for two weeks. And then uh, I went uh, up to our forward LZ, which was up south of the DMZ, but right near the border of of Vietnam and Laos. And it turns out that our unit, the 34th IPSD forward base, had anywhere from 15 to 20 handlers there. And then we had our main kennels back at K, and we would work maybe 30, 35 days, and then we would rotate down to K to have four or five days of R&R, and then we would be Rotated back up. Uh, the way it worked was um, the first time that I went out, I would go out with an experienced handler. He would be like a guide to me, mm-hmm. and uh, it was uh, it was very scary the first time I went out because you know here you go you go to a a chopper pad and they fly you out to the middle of the jungle. You get out and now you report to the infantry unit. And there you're going to get your orders for the day. Well, we're going four or five clicks around this, um, you know, into this area. And most of the places that I worked were in the triple canopy jungle. And to be honest with you, we didn't know if we were in Vietnam or if we were in Laos because the 1st Cavalry's uh, division was their job was to try and find the troops that were the nva troops that were coming down from north vietnam via the ho chi minh trail and that was our mission was to try to intercept them let me jump in here uh, one clarification a
1: click is a uh, military lingo for a measurement of distance which happens to equate to a 1000 uh, kilometers right. one kilometer i should say right. and uh, so four clicks would be 4000 Uh, would be four kilometers or 4,000 meters. Uh, Did you, as in effect, the leader of a combat unit, uh, physically, I I mean to say, uh, at the front of the unit, did you feel a certain degree of responsibility
0: in that job? Oh, a a tremendous responsibility. See, and the thing is, is that um, I had to tell the company commander of that infantry unit that I need to walk out ahead of the rest of the body of men because the dog needs to have as much silence as possible for him to hear uh, and see and what have you. So I generally worked anywhere between 25 and 50, let's call it yards ahead of the tr- ahead of the, the troop. Now, sometimes you couldn't go that far because the jungle was so thick, but we are, our unit, we worked off-leash, so we trained, when I trained it, when I got to Vietnam, <clears throat> I trained with Skip to be off-leash, meaning that as long as I can see him, then everything will be okay. Obviously, people might think that that's pretty cruel of the dog, but the, the fact of the matter was is that the United States infantry were getting their, their butts kicked in the jungle by the nba and by the viet cong because we did not know how to actually move through the jungle as silently as these people were we would walk they were walking into ambushes and and uh, booby trapped areas and that's why the army needed a tool and that tool was the eyes ears and uh, smell of the the dog as a tool and that was my job to be able to read that As an outsider, that would be me, looking
1: in or listening in, in this case, to your story, it sounds to me like you're
0: describing a suicide mission. Well, you know, it's interesting because, as I told you, when I, after AIT, after I got my orders, I told you my platoon sergeant looked up in the book about the MOS. Military Occupational Specialty. He told me exactly what I would be doing. And he then, when he got done, he at the very end in this book, it actually gives you your rate, your time of um, reaction, and and whatever at, at first contact, and it would say that your reaction time once you've been located by the enemy is probably less than a half a second. Wow! So that meant to me that I better find them first before they find me. And that's, and when I did go out on my missions, with the bond of the guys that I knew that were in my unit, we knew when when each one of us were told, okay, you got to gear up because you're leaving at uh, 0600, uh, we would look at each other and just kind of look into their eyes and we knew This might be the last time that we see them alive. And uh, having said that, there was a tremendous bond for the guys that I served with over there in our 34th infantry platoon. Um, And so we all had a great deal of respect for one another. And to this day, we still do and we still get together every two years.
1: What you're describing sounds to me like, uh, you call it an MOS, a military occupational specialty. It sounds to me like an MOS that, uh, from which no one could survive. Was there a high rate of fatalities among those that
0: had your skills? Well, let me put it to you this way. After coming back, I'm just going to just say this, after coming back from the war, I did a lot of research a few years after that. We graduated 48 men from Fort Benning, Georgia, who were graduated as scout dog handlers. Going back through records, found out that out of the 48 men that I graduated with, 13 of us came back alive. So it was a very, very dangerous occupation. Um, you're scared when you go out, and it doesn't matter how long you've gone out and how many missions, you're scared. But I can tell you that once the dog alerts, generally speaking, the enemy now knows that they've been detected and fire starts. And at that point, that fear turns into survival mode, and you do what you need to do to stay safe
1: did the enemy see the dog as I sincerely hope what I'm about to say does not sound callous. It is not meant that way. The question is this, did the enemy view the dog as valuable of a target as they viewed
0: you? Let me tell you that um, before I even went out on the first mission, my company commander, Lieutenant Buckner says, I just want to let you know something. He showed me, some documentation that they had gotten from some prisoners of uh, NVA prisoners, and that uh, in that docu, docu, document, uh, as it was um, interpreted, the NVA North Vietnamese Army, if they were to come back with the cut off ear of the dog and the dog tags of the handler that they would get extra pay.
1: We are listening to the accounts of Jerry Witt, a Vietnam veteran who served with um, the 1st Cavalry Division of the Army in Vietnam. And, uh, of course, you're joining us today on the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Jerry, take a moment just to catch your breath. I'm going to ask you next about your return home and how you were received. And after that, I want to hear how you have um, lived your life. And what I mean by that is how you have dealt with any uh, lasting or lingering memories that um, may have been associated with your experience overseas. But first, let's get to what I assume would have been just a glorious day. And that would be the day that you came back home um, to the Milwaukee area. After having survived your service uh, in Vietnam, what was that
0: homecoming like? Well, it's interesting because um, I came home and through um, Fort Lewis, Washington, and I flew into flew into Milwaukee, and um, you know when I got into Milwaukee, I thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm home." Uh, My wife was there to meet me. Um, My parents were there. But as I walked down the halls of the airport, I could see people kind of looking at me with my uniform on. And none of them really said, well, you know, welcome home or thank you. In fact, there was more dirty looks than anything else. And I thought, wow, I really, I didn't understand that. But you have to understand that at that time, politically in this country, there was a lot of turmoil with, um, you know, people that were uh, opposed to the war and so forth. So when I got home, the first thing I did is I took my uniform off, and I hung it on a, on a hanger, and believe it or not, I had that uniform in my closet on the original hanger, and it hasn't been off that hanger since I got back, and I saw a few of my friends when I came back, and it was interesting, one fellow that I, I knew so much... He said, Jerry, how are you? He says, it's been such a long time. Where have you been? And I said, well, I was in Vietnam. And he says, oh, and that was it. And I just thought, wow, you know, I know my dad talked about coming home and all the accolades they got and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And I just was like, holy cow. You know, I sacrificed my life. I put my life on the line. I was very fortunate to be one of the lucky ones in my job to come back home. And and now, you know, you got no respect. So I buried it. Like so many of my brothers who came home, um, we buried it inside because we're tough. You know, you can take it. You don't have to worry about this. And so I tried to forget about anything and everything, trying to forget about, trying to even talk about it. And I tried to pick up where I wanted to, where I left off before I left. And um, through time, after I came home, I found it more and more difficult to deal with it. And um, my, my wife and I were distant. And looking back at it now, uh, I can't really blame her because, you see, we got married right away, and we didn't grow together. She stayed home, and I went to Vietnam, and I saw a lot of death. I saw a lot of destruction. I saw a lot of misery. Um, I saw things that I never thought I would ever see, the horrors of war. And I buried it inside because nobody wanted to hear about it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. But I'm tough. I can handle it. Did you
1: at some point as you were burying as you describe it these feelings? Was there a, a voice inside there or something that began asking you if any of this was your fault somehow? That that you did something wrong? Did that well, start to work on you? I, I
0: I started questioning the whole <clears throat> Vietnam War and you know what 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 good did we do over there? and what really was this all about? and, and it turns out that the, the simple answer was politics mm-hmm. like any war. but the more importantly was when I came back home and I made it home through all the things that I had gone through. I felt like the world owed me. So I decided I'm going to do whatever I want, when I want, with whom I want. And that was really looking back at it, hindsight, that was me. And I I'm ashamed of what I became after the war. My marriage only lasted seven years. We had two young children and I'm blessed to have them today. Um, But then I went through relationships like, like water through a sieve. I
1: ended
0: up, I ended up marrying three more times. All for the wrong reasons, because I wanted to have a wife, because I had children. And finally, finally back in the 80s, uh, this was what 15, 18 years after the war, I got home. I decided, I thought to myself, you know what, I really need to talk to somebody. And so I started seeing seeing a shrink. And uh, saw a shrink for about a year and a half. And I finally made some sense about what was really buried inside of me because I never had anybody else to talk to about it. And, yeah, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of anger. And I, I dealt with it. And um, it, it made me a better person But there were also there's always going to be something inside of me that I that I need to just clear my head about. And finally, finally, about twenty years ago, I thought I would never marry again. I didn't think I'd ever really want to. Uh, I met a lady, and uh, we started dating, and. There's been 24 years that we were together, but we never got married. And uh, finally, this year on the 14th of June, we got married. Congratulations! I am so happy to be with this lady. (laughs) Her name is Carol, and uh, my life right now is is very is very good. Uh, But it took me a a long time to get there. I want to hear more about the good
1: in your life, but you used a word that we really need to go back to because it has such, if I can editorialize here for just a moment, it has such a a remarkable power. And the word is should. You said you should if I can paraphrase, you should be able to handle these feelings because after all, you're tough. I'm referring to the time uh, upon your return and the experiences that you had and how you should be able to handle this stuff. But in reality, was there any support there for you to be able to learn how to cope with these things? Did the Army or the Veterans Administration at that time in the 70s Did they offer up anything that would have helped you do
0: that? Actually, um, they did not. When I came back uh, from Vietnam, and like I said, I went through um, Fort Lewis, there was never anybody that said, hey, you know what, if you need some counseling, you need somebody to talk to here, go see this person, go see that person, you're going back home, there's a VA in Milwaukee, contact these people, there was none of that, unfortunately. Basically, all we wanted to do was go home. Mm -hmm. And once I got home, and like I said, I buried it, and then it was years later, where I finally talked to another veteran, He, he did not serve in in Vietnam, he was in the Coast Guard. He was a close friend of mine. And he said to me, he said, Jerry, and this is after I had gone through these relationships. He said, Jerry, he says, you know what you need? You need to get hooked up with the VA. Mm. And I said, really? And he says, yeah. He says, They're there. they've got people there that can help you. And uh, I took his advice, and I went to the VA. And I was also having some issues with, with my right hip. And I talked to, I talked to a, a person there, uh, and he was sitting behind the desk, and I told him my story. I told him about my need for someone to, that I need to talk to, some counseling, and I also told him about my physical needs. Well, he ended up, Um, putting a claim in for me. And then I was uh, actually um, rated at 10% disabled, which got me to be able to see some physicians and stuff. And I told him when I got to 10%, 10%, he said, that's not good enough. Hmm. So he ended up going back and uh, filing, and I made it to 30%. And at that point in time, now I was able to get the physical needs that I'd had to to do. And if I could just digress one, just a little bit. One time in coming into an LZ with full pack, my weapons, my helmet, my backpack and everything, my dog. As we came in on the chopper, uh, Skip decided for some reason it'll happen. He decided that about 20 feet in the air he jumped. Oh my. And I had a safety leash on my left hand and he pulled me out. And I hit the, I hit the the ground and with a thud and um, twisted my ankle. I thought I broke it. They put me back in the chopper. I went back to Vietnam, to my headquarters, they took me to the infirmary, they took the x-rays, nothing was broke. They mm-hmm. they put it in a soft cast, gave me crutches and said, "Report back in three weeks. Well, I should I, well, hindsight is 50/50. I should have said, I want that in my records. <laughs> it never went in my records. And as a result of that, I'll go flash forward 45 years. I started having arthritis problems in my and from my waist on down, my hips, my knees, my ankles, and uh, I ended up having two hip replacements and a knee replacement. Wow. And so, so, in, anyways, I'm very thankful and very blessed that we have a VA, and especially this one in Milwaukee, that is able to take care of my physical needs and my mental needs. And the mental needs is probably even more important because – From time to time, I still see somebody down there today, and it's good.
1: You know, it's interesting, the uh, Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast is an audio production, so people are not going to see me, they're not going to see you, but they're going to hear us, and I can tell you from listening intently to your story that I can clearly hear today the... uh, really the pain and the grief that still lingers inside of you from Vietnam. But I also hear just a wonderful sense of, of hopefulness and optimism in the tone of your voice. And given the experiences that you've had, life experiences combined with the war experiences, uh, number one, in my opinion, it's just, it's so reassuring to hear that optimism this is a long winded way to what I'm leading up to, and that is how do you do that? How do you maintain what sounds like that optimistic spirit uh, going
0: forward? Well, in my case, I'll tell you what, I've been very blessed. I've been blessed to meet um, the, if you will, the love of my life. I, I don't think I really knew. What uh, relationships were all about. I was a young kid when I left to go to Vietnam and go into the military. But as you as you get older, you learn to realize that um, you know life is what you make of it. And I have seen so many, so many uh, guys in from the Vietnam era who <clears throat> maybe still are in drugs and have failed to try to even pick themselves up by the bootstraps and make something of their life. And I look at it, I try to look at it differently because I have been blessed with people that care for me, care about me mentally and physically. So I feel like I, I need to do my best to show positive, po- positivity, positively the uh, effects that uh, can be overcome now, you're not going to ever change what happened. It's always going to be in your head, but you have to move forward and you have to look forward. And um, being 74 years old right now, I don't know how much time I have left, but I can tell you that I'm I'm the happiest now that I've been probably in my whole life. And uh, I, I wanted to, to remain that way. And I'm going to do the best that I can to make it that way. Let's begin to
1: move toward summing up this uh, conversation, Jerry, which is, sure. thank you, uh, thanks to your generosity, has been uh, just amazingly powerful. What would you suggest? And of course, we have a whole new generation of veterans returning now from the Gulf Wars, from Afghanistan and Iraq and other conflicts. What would you suggest to them, or for that matter, to uh, vet, uh, Vietnam veterans who have not sought out counseling, et cetera? what would you suggest to them to try to reconcile the feelings that they either have encountered or
0: will encounter in the future? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I do have a few friends of mine that are Vietnam vets that have never sought any, any help, but I try to, I try to encourage them to do that. Um, I I try to tell them that there's so much help available and, um, you know, try to befriend them and say, "Hey, listen. I I realize, and I I know what it's like. I've been there. I, I've I feel your pain, um, and I think it's helped because I think I've helped several several fellas to to finally realize that. Hey, you know what? You've got a lot of life left to live. So you know what? Get up off your butt and get it done and you know, do yourself and your family a favor by doing that.
1: Is there something positive that you can identify from your experience uh, with the service
0: and and with life, for that matter? Well, I think the biggest thing is the relationships that that I had I had uh, experienced over there. Um, as I've said before, uh, there's I am in charge of a of our 34th infantry platoon scout dog uh every two-year um reunion and it started back in uh back in 84 when we had like four guys that met we now have a list of 26 men from our unit now you have to understand i didn't i didn't know all of them but they were part of the 34th and as long as you're part of that family, you know, you're welcome. And anybody else who might be a scout dog handler is welcome. And so I've built this list and um, we've sent out emails and I'm in charge of organizing these, these reunions. And we've had these reunions all over the country. We've gone from Myrtle beach all the way out to Oregon and uh, you know, and so forth. And we were supposed to have one this year, but because of COVID, no, uh, we're going to have that in 22. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's just so great to see these fellows and get together and with their wives and their wives have, have formed a bond as well. And so have we. And I, I just want to, I, I, I use that that bond when I talk to my fellow Vietnam friends, that There's a bond there, and you know, you need to lean on people. People are here to help you. And if I can't, if I can help you in any way, I'll definitely do that. And I've gotten to know so many different people that are so wonderful with that are Vietnam vets. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm a, it's an honor for me to participate to do what I can to help others,
1: Jerry. You have, um generously shared so many things with us today, and I, I want to express my gratitude for that. Thank you so much. Is there anything that I did not ask or that you'd like to touch on? Um, please
0: feel free to do that. Well, I can tell you this. Uh, during my time in Vietnam, as I said, uh, I had a dog, his name was Skip. Um, I ended up losing him in Vietnam. He, uh, it was a uh, it was a, a gray, dark, damp morning, and um, it had rained, and moisture walk, washes away scent left behind sometimes. And he ended up getting into a booby trap, a tripwire. And he tried to back away, and it exploded. And he uh, got wounded in three places. We were Medevac down to Saigon. He went through the operation just fine. But uh, two days later, he got a staph infection, and he ended up dying. So I had to take him back to our unit. We buried him, and then I got my second dog that I had to uh, choose. And uh, my second dog was pure black. Uh, He was a a German Shepherd Lab. And um, I had him, and he kept me safe for the rest of my tour. And then when I left – and I had to say goodbye to him. That was tough because he went on to a different handler. But those are some of the things that, you know, um, we, we've all experienced sadness in Vietnam, after Vietnam. But that was a real tough one for me to leave him behind. And the last thing I want to say is that I thought it was an absolute disgrace that when the war ended, that they did not return these animals back home. They gave, I don't know, a certain amount of them to the South Vietnamese Army. The others, they euthanized or just frankly let go. And to me, that was uh, despicable. It really was. Nowadays, they don't do that anymore and i'm very very thankful for that they come home with their handlers
1: we have been visiting with army and vietnam veteran jerry witts thank you to our audience for listening to the stigma free vet zone podcast your feedback is always encouraged you can join us at www.orbanfoundationforveterans.org on behalf of the podcast hosts mike orban and Aaron Schroffnagel. This is Bob Bach. Our audio engineer is Mark Holiniak. Ben Slane is our producer. The Stigma Free Vet Zone is made possible by a grant from the Charles E. Kubernetes Foundation.
0: Thank you for listening.